verse 1. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet your tribute bring, ransom tilled, restored, forgiven, evermore his praises sing.
sometimes it's hard to tell the night from day still that hope that lies within is reassured as I keep my eyes upon the distant shore I know safely to that blessed place he has prepared but if the storms don't cease and if the
the Lord, heal the Lord, heal the Lord, my soul, my soul, my, 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 my soul, my soul, my soul, oh, oh, the bones me roll, the bones me dash, but I will not sway, because he holds me fast. So dark the day, no cloud in the sky. I know it's alright, cause Jesus is nigh in my soul. is 1st Timothy chapter 6, uh, the first of Paul's pastoral epistles to Timothy, 1st Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 13. If you'd like to turn there and I'll read the verses in our hearing. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Commandment and doxology are the words I've chosen to comprise a title for these verses this morning. The world and its troubles and our personal turmoils and travails and the ordinary routines of life can act like a solar eclipse blocking out from our sight the greatness and majesty of our God. We are uh, sometimes complicit in the eclipse, we avert our eyes to less significant things. Psalm 113 verse 3 implores us with these words, from the rising of the sun to its setting, 
The name of the Lord is to be praised. So from the beginning of the day and throughout the day and at the close of the day, his name is to be praised by his people. The name of the Lord, of course, refers to who he is, his essence, his revealed character, which is found in Holy Writ. In the midst of instructing Timothy, the lead pastor of the church at Ephesus, Paul includes a doxology. A doxology is a hymn of praise. A hymn of praise to the Lord. In doing so, the apostle reminds us of what we can incorporate in our own daily exaltations of God. He gives us some words that reflect the character of God by which we, when we're thinking about him, we can lift up to him in adoration and praise for who he is as he's revealed himself to us in Scripture. In uh, verses 15b through 16 are where the doxology begins. First, however, the apostle gives a command, and we see this command in verses 13 through 15, the A portion. And even with that, as he's given a command to Timothy as to how he is to conduct himself as the lead pastor there in Ephesus, Paul includes divine attributes which should elicit from us praise, and they do. Adoration for the greatness of God, as Paul just puts them there in verses 13 and 14. The first uh, thing we, we need to look at, of course, is the command, and I've called the heading, A Charge to Keep. A Charge to Keep. I, I got that from a, a hymn, A Charge to Keep or God to Glorify. You notice in our text, Paul begins in verse 13, I charge. In those two words, we see Paul's authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ which is reflected in the use of the first-person singular pronoun, I. Paul is not on ego trip. He is simply being Christ's representative. He has authority as an apostle. So what he is saying is what Christ is saying to Timothy. He further says, I give this command to you, I give this charge to you in the presence of God. And we also have to conclude based on the grammar here, and of Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying here, right away, is what are the attributes of the deity? The omnipresence of the Father and the Son. What this means is that Timothy wasn't, and we're not ever for any moment, or any minute or second, out of their presence. God doesn't relate to space as we do. He, he doesn't have spatial limitations. He is immediately present. He is with you where you are, with me where I am, with all his people and all people everywhere, all at the same time with all of his being. He is not 
partly there. He is not partly over here. He is wherever he is, which is everywhere, with all of his divine being. When scripture depicts God as going or coming, and it does, you need to understand these are metaphorical expressions. They indicate a special manifestation of God's presence in grace or judgment. God doesn't go anywhere. He can't go where he already is. He is omnipresent. But we need to have terminology that helps us grasp. Because we have no concept what it is to be everywhere all the time. It's beyond us. An example of this, God going, we find it with regard to the Tower of Babel. Remember that in Genesis chapter 11. In rebellion against God, they decided they're not going to spread all over the earth like God commanded. They said, we're just going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a tower, a ziggurat. Well, that's what we're going to do. And then God says in Genesis eleven seven, these words, come, let us go down. And there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Obviously, go down is not literal. I've already said that. He, he is not moving from heaven to earth. It's a figure of speech. But it helps us to grasp that God is going to get up close and personal and inspect it. That helps us get it. But he's going down in judgment in this case. His special manifestation of his presence would be in judgment. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, we think of that as the day the Holy Spirit descended upon the 120 and dwelt them there in the upper room. But we need to understand that was a special manifestation of his presence for spiritual blessing. The Holy Spirit was already in the world. He was already in the room. He had always been with them, but in that particular instance, he manifested his presence in a unique way. Now, with all that said, it's, what's the deal here in verse 13? I charge you in the presence of God. Why is that important? Because the command Paul is going to give to Timothy he would be motivated by knowing that he is working out the command in the presence of God. It should motivate him. The omnipresence of God ought to motivate us too. Since we are always in his presence, since his presence is inescapable, whither shall I flee from your spirit? Remember David said that in Psalm 139. If I sit in heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. There's no place David could go, no place any of us could go to get away from him. His scrutinizing presence. And I also believe his gracious presence. Yes, he sees us, everything that goes on. He knows all about what's transpiring, but he helps us too. By his grace. But also, uh, there's accountability. Accountability. It's good to remember uh, that whatever we do, we do it in the very presence of God. People, you know how people are, they, they like to hide when they're going to do something they don't want other people to see. 
they go into a room, maybe close the door, turn up the lights, as if the darkness in the room is keeping God out. He is there before you get there. So this the presence of God would be an impetus for Timothy, pastor here, to fulfill the command that Paul is going to give him. And further, Paul elaborates, you notice in verse about God, who gives life to all things. Gives life to all things. This is God's power. He is present in power. God's uh, power is expressed here. He gives life and he sustains life. Believers never ask or should never ask, where did life come from? We know. It comes from the life giver. Paul, when he was in uh, Athens, remember the great intellectual center during that time, it declined somewhat. And by the time Paul got there, went to Areopagus, Mars Hill, as it's called. It's where all the philosophers of uh, every stripe and intellectuals, they got together and they, they would want to uh, debate issues. They loved intellectual stimulation. That's what they did. But that, that city, it provoked Paul because there was a, an idol, a statue to the unknown God. And Paul wouldn't explain to them who the true God is that they didn't know. And in this elaboration of that reality in Acts chapter 17, verse 25, he says this about the true God, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives life to all people, gives to all people life and breath and all things. He can and he does give life because life is inherent in him. Let me illustrate it, perhaps. Everything we know runs out. Everyone in this room, and everyone listening to me has a cell phone, you had to plug that thing in, didn't you? You knew you had to plug it in because if you didn't, it was going to be useless when you needed it. It has no power in itself. Electric cars are coming, some already here. They have to be plugged in. They have to be plugged into a power source outside themselves. Obviously, God doesn't need to be plugged in, if you will. No external source for life for him. Life is inherent in him. It's an attribute of his life. And this life-giving power includes the resurrection from the dead. That's why Paul mentions in verse 13, next thing, Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. You say, why is that there? Well, as recorded in John chapter 18, verses 30 through 37, Jesus stood before this Roman governor who would decide on, in humanly speaking, our Lord's fate. And at the cost of his life, Jesus was steadfast at speaking the truth. He affirmed when he was asked, yes, I am the king of the Jews. Jesus was a faithful witness. It says in Revelation, 
faithful witness to the truth. He knew that God the Father would raise him from the dead. This fact ought to uh, encourage us. Should be a powerful impetus for us as it was for Timothy. To be unafraid of speaking the truth. To stand unflinchingly before the enemies of the gospel, whether in the church, outside the church, and tell the truth. We shouldn't ever fear for our life, but after all, God gives life, he sustains life, and if there's death, he certainly can raise us back to life and will. So Paul has said these things. And now he says in verse 14 that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word commandment is singular, of course, but it does not refer to a single commandment. It refers to the whole revealed word of God, which includes, of course, the gospel. The gospel. And interestingly, the gospel must be guarded. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, Paul writes, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. What is that? The gospel. Why is that important? I'll tell you why it's important. Because the gospel will be assaulted. It was being assaulted. It will be assailed. And so we must protect it. We must guard it and proclaim it. We can't do it, however, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. I remember once uh, some time ago when I was reading it, it just struck me that you cannot guard, protect the gospel apart from the power, the working of the Holy Spirit. That's fascinating to me. If he didn't do it, it wouldn't be guarded by us. We must guard against distortions of the gospel. We, we must guard against another gospel, as Galatians chapter 1 says. We must guard the only saving message. Profoundly important. I listened to someone trying to defend uh, a prosperity teacher's prosperity teaching. So there's no defense for that. It's a lie. It's not the true gospel. We must guard it. And Timothy had to do it. So all of us do, must do that. We must have the gospel right. We must proclaim the gospel correctly. We must tell people what true salvation really is and how the gospel applies. We must do that. We must guard, protect, and proclaim the gospel. It is the only saving message. And Satan and his allies will seek to divert us away from it, try to get us to preach something other than the true gospel. He knows that without the true gospel, people will be damned forever. But the Holy Spirit helps us guard the treasure. The treasure of the gospel. I'm glad it's called the treasure there because it, it enriches the soul for eternity. Now, you notice something Paul says, uh, you've got to keep this commandment, Timothy. 
without stain or reproach. Important this is his personal life. Without stain, no blemish regarding his attitude or his conduct. You see, that would undermine the gospel message. It would obliterate his credibility. That's why a person has to be a minister or anybody else has to be sure they're without blemish. Not saying they're going to be sinless. No such thing in this, this life. But they have to be without reproach. No legitimate accusation level against them. No outstanding ongoing sin. Nothing where people say, oh, look at that life. I'll tell you something. Recently in evangelicalism, there have been people being exposed and exposed. I'm thinking, I, I see this almost every day. This past week, two times. I thought, really? It's been going on. We're finding out sexual sins, this stuff, this uh, financial sins, corruption from leaders. Some more well known than others. In the world, what they do, they sit back and say, mm hmm. These Christians, and they talk about righteousness, but you look at their leaders and their ungodly lives. We have to be without reproach. And that includes all Christians, actually. Just not pastors or elders. All Christians are to maintain the commandment or the word of God with a life that backs it up. Without stain, without reproach. All Christians, Philippians chapter 2.15, to substantiate my point, uh, says we are, are to prove ourselves blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. Titus 2.9, we are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. A virtuous, godly life is how we adorn the gospel. We make it attractive. To unbelievers, you see, the best advertisement of the gospel is a life that's been transformed by the gospel. If I should sell, try to sell you that I can help you be buffed, and you look at me and say, uh, physician. <laughs> yourself. I wouldn't be a very good advertisement, would I? People want to see the message transforming a life. And when they do, see it's attractive. By the way, Titus 2, that comes in the context of work life. Christians are, are to be at, in the workplace people who are above reproach. People who are not like their co-workers in their behavior. They're distinct because the gospel has transformed them and it's obvious to everyone they work with. Wherever we are as believers, we ought to always stand out because we are different. We adorn the gospel. We make it attractive to the observers. The observers being unbelievers. Now, you say, how long, Timothy? 
must you hold the commandment without stain or reproach? It says in verse 14, the bottom of the verse, uh, uh, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how long the command's in effect. Of course, we could die before we return, so keep until you die. And if you're still alive when he comes, be sure you're without stain or without reproach when he shows up. The word appearing there uh, renders a Greek word from which our English term epiphany comes. An epiphany. You hear it all the time. People say, I had an epiphany. They're going to have one all right when Jesus comes. <laughs> epiphany means a glorious manifestation. It's going to be glorious when he comes. And it will happen because you'll notice in the text, verse 15, the A portion, which he, speaking of the Father, will bring about at the proper time. God in his omnipotence will bring it, this future historical event about at the proper time. Proper time, God controls and determines when his son will return. No one will be able to stop that, not even Satan. The most powerful creature in existence, Satan, and all of his emissaries combined, their power is meaningless against the omnipotence of the Creator, who at the time he is set in his own authority, as Jesus says in Acts 1, will send his son back to this planet. He is coming. Now, how does that apply? A future event. How does that apply to me today? I'm glad you asked. The return of the Lord Jesus is imminent. Is imminent. It could happen at any moment. That reality should be the impetus for faithful Christian living. You don't know. He could come this afternoon. He could come in the morning. He is present. He's observing us. And at the time he has chosen, the son will return. I, I think when I was younger, there was a song that we used to sing at our church saying, um, don't let him catch you with your work undone. This always stuck with me. Don't let him catch you with your work undone. Don't let Jesus come and what are you doing messing around? So we see a charge to keep. Next thing is an ascription of praise. Beginning at the B portion of verse 15. He who is the blessed. Shall I add the word God? That's what we're talking about here. Paul terminates his instruction and interjects praise here. Paul is used to doing that. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Paul uh, concludes a passage teaching the reality of what God has done, shutting up all understanding, then he has mercy on all Jew and Gentile. Then he burst in praise in those verses, Romans 11, 33 through 36. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, this very book we're in, verse 17, Paul, uh, there's another doxology. He extols God for his saving mercy to him. 
I can just imagine Paul, as he thought about theological truths, it would just cause him to stop and praise God, and we see it in Scripture. And that should be how it affects us. As you think about what the Lord has done, it ought to give rise to adoration and praise. And here in these verses, Paul um, gives us a doxology, and he's, he, in this doxology, doxology, he selects some attributes of God for which to praise him. Notice, I already read it, the blessed. Let's stop there and let's talk about that. God is blessed. He is blessed. We usually think about ourselves being blessed by God, not God himself being blessed. But God is blessed. Blessed comes from the Greek word, you know, makarios, and makarios is the same word used by our Lord Jesus Christ in the Beatitudes, blessed, 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 makarios, makarios. But here it is used of God. Makarios, or blessed, means happy. God is happy. He's a happy God. Now, his happiness is not obtained from an outside source. It's not conditioned on what is happening, as is human happiness. His happiness is inherent. Since God, now get this, is absolutely perfect, sovereign, and unhindered in all his purposes and works, and he works to glorify his name, he is the happiest being conceivable. He's sovereign. He's perfect. He's glorifying his name. He's working out his plan. He's happy. He is unperturbed. When you're working out your plan, when everything is going to do exactly what you want it to do to accomplish your purpose, ultimately, which is to glorify your name, you're unperturbed, you're calm. We're not like that many times. Why? Because things aren't in our control. And we can be disturbed. Now, yes, God is displeased with sin. But it does not disturb his contentment. It doesn't make him less happy. You say, how can that be? This is how it can be. Even sin and evil, God makes those things work for his purpose. He's not defeated by sin and evil. He works him in his plan to achieve his ultimate end that his name may be glorified. Now God contains all happiness. That's why he's the blessed God. He is blessed in himself. And what God does, he bestows it on us, on mankind, especially those who are in a saving relationship with him. Remember in Psalm 2, psalmist implores People will kiss the sun lest his wrath comes. Psalm 2.12 says, How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is in God's anointed. That is our Christ. 
we're happy who take refuge in Christ. God is blessed or happy. He is sovereign. We know that you've been in this church any, any time at all. You know that we often refer to the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty applies to human rulers in Scripture. But their sovereignty is delegate, delegated and limited. It is temporary. God, however, is sovereign in his own power. No one gave it to him. It is eternal sovereignty. It is an attribute of his. It is his essence. Now, you'll notice something in the text. It says only sovereign. Only doesn't mean numerically like one. Only there means he is unique. He is incomparable. That's what is being uh, told to us. There is no one like him in sovereignty. Yes, they're human sovereigns, but they're, they cannot be compared to him. Isaiah 46. God says these things about himself through the prophet. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Listen to that. He says, my purpose will be established. I'll accomplish all my good pleasure. Man's protestations and efforts notwithstanding, God is going to get what he wants done, done because he is unique. He's God. He runs the show. And he has the right and power to do as he pleases in heaven and on earth, Psalm 135, and he does it. And in our text here in 1 Timothy 6, we see this understanding of divine sovereignty in relation to lesser sovereigns. You see, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. The double title there, king of kings and lord of lords, applied to the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 17, verses Verse 14 in Revelation 19, verse 16. But you know what's fascinating here? Um, at least I think it is. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The original, that is the Greek text, literally reads this. King of those kinging and Lord of those lording. Reflecting the present tense. Who, who's ever kinging it at the moment? <laughs> he is the king of that king of those kings. So on. King of kings. He is the possessor of the highest power. Lord, he's master. He is the master of the ones who are in control. I don't know about you, but that is a source of comfort. It's comforting to know that God is in total control of everything and all powers, even Satan, and that, and that he will bring all things to the end for which he has planned. I was in Isaiah a moment ago. And if you've read Isaiah, you know in this portion of Scripture, God is uh, condemning uh, idolatry. He's also announced that he's going to raise up a man um, who's going to be one he's going to use to uh, free Israel, bring them back from bondage. And God says this in Isaiah 46, calling a bird of prey from the east, 
the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. God says I'm calling Cyrus. He's going to come. He's going to do what I want him to do. God is going to get his will done. Because that's what God does. Let me tell you how that can apply. Here's the comforting thing. God has a plan for our church in his ministry. And his success ultimately doesn't depend on us, but him. Because he's going to get done through us what he wants. Now, we have a responsibility to obey. We have a responsibility to do the things he wants. But we do that in dependence upon him to work through us, not that we got to get this thing pulled off because we know God is the one who is supplying us with what we need, and he'll get it done as we yield to him. If I stood up here and thought the salvation of a single soul rested in me, that would be a burden too heavy for me to bear. I'm going to preach the word of God. And God's going to take his word, he's going to save. God's going to take his word, he's going to sanctify. And I know he does it because I've seen him do it. And I'm thinking, how did that happen? It wasn't me. He is sovereign over everything. That's comforting to know. Verse 16, Paul continues, notice these things we can praise him for. He's blessed. He's the only sovereign. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. You can just say that when you're praying. That's who you are, Lord. You're the blessed God, the happy God. You're the only sovereign, Lord. There are a lot of other sovereigns, but you are the sovereign. You're king of kings and lord of lords. Just repeat back to him who he is. Verse 16, who alone possesses immortality. Paul here says this because the Romans consider the emperors immortal. Ah, that's a lie, and Paul debunks it here. They're not immortal. God alone possesses. Notice, who alone possesses immortality. He's not able to die. That's wonderful news. That means he's always going to be around. <laughs> I don't have to worry about my life because God will be around because he's Deathless. He's eternal. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 says this, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, as the first appearing, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We know where immortality for us comes from, through the gospel. Eternal life comes through the gospel. Death has been rendered inoperative for us. It's been abolished because of the gospel, what Christ has done, his death, burial, and resurrection. Our immortality, and we do have it, is a redemptive concept. It just simply means everlasting salvation. We have received this immortality as one receives a drink of water from a fountain. God is the fountain. We've drunk deeply from him, and we have immortal life, immortality. Immortality, because God's a fountain, using this picture. 
This belongs to his very being. Now, our immortality, immortality is not complete yet. In the resurrection of Christians from the dead, we will receive an immortal body, 1 Corinthians 15, 53, so that the whole body and soul become immortal, not subject to death. That's going to be a fascinating thing on many levels <laughs> when that comes. Next thing, verse 16, holiness. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. Unapproachableness. He's transcendent and totally beyond us as the deity over creatures. Isaiah 6, chapters, verses 1 through 3. He is in a category all by himself. He is holy, separate from us. God is not some just bigger man. That's one of the reasons I hate that phrase, the man upstairs. It diminishes God. He's not the man upstairs. He is in a wholly other category. This essential being. And you say, well, isn't Jesus a man? Yes, but let me let you understand something. Uh, his humanity wasn't part of his essential being. Isaiah chapter 6, that's Christ on there, by the way. John tells us. He's holy. He does not make any mistakes. His judgment is always right. And those who oppose him will be judged by him. He's an invisible God. May, I'm, I'm going to tell you some things now. God is invisible. He said, yes, yes, I know. You, you, I can't see him. My physical senses can't do that. This is why. God is spirit, Jesus taught us, John 4. Um, he has no materiality. There is no physicality to God. He doesn't have a body. His essence cannot be seen. Here's something, newsflash. Even when we're in our glorified state totally, we're in his presence, we still will be human, we still will be finite, we will not be able to see him in his essence. We'll have greater spiritual perception of God, but we won't see his essence. He's infinite. He's invisible. The Bible speaks of God's face. That's an anthropomorphism that is applying a human characteristic to God. He doesn't have a face like us. It's just a way to express his presence, but not his essence. Let me tell you something. God is greater than we can even imagine. He's great. But he's greater than we can conceive. We don't have the capacity to understand how great God is. We can throw around theological terms like omnipresent, omniscient, all that. And you really, we don't get it fully. We can give a definition, but we don't really get how great God is. But we can give him worship. And we can praise him as he's disclosed his greatness to us. Think about this. He's the blessed God, the only sovereign, the king of kings, Lord of lords, alone possesses immortality, dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. Wow. 
To him be honor and eternal dominion. Paul and all Christians desire that God is given the respect and reverence that is due him, right? In eternal dominion, may his rule never end. And it won't. Now that's how to praise the Lord. When I was growing up in church, the final um, thing we did at the close of the service was to sing the doxology. And then we went out. We're not going to do that this morning. But that's a good way to close with a doxology, a praise to our God. Let us bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Thank you for its truth, its power to shape us, to transform our thinking, our lives, to glorify your name. Help us to meditate on the realities of who you are as you present them in your word, revealing um, these profound truths. Help us to live in the light of them for your glory and our joy and good. We pray for any who may hear and are not saved. We pray you open their eyes to the truth of who Christ is, the Savior, the Redeemer. They will come by faith to him. We pray these things now in his holy name. Amen. Well, that concludes our time this day, uh, this Lord's Day. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again next week, Lord willing. God bless you.